We are back, back ahead of Oklahoma's Week 11 matchup with West Virginia, back before the Sooners' final home night game of the Big 12 era, and back with Todd Lisenby and a special guest today on the 22nd episode of the Letterman Jacket. Guys, number 22 on the Sooners, of course, belongs to Peyton Bowen, and uh, and walk-on Norman native Chapman McCown. 1922, Benny Owens' 18th season at OU. The Sooners were captained by a man named Tarzan Marsh. His real name was Howard. All right, we are here with Todd Lisenby. Back. Welcome back, Todd. And we're here with Steve Winkler, the host, or one of the hosts, of Two Homers and a Realist, a really worthwhile OU pod. Go check it out. Today, guys, we are going to discuss officiating and how big uh, OU fans feel about Big 12 officiating. We're going to hit on Brent Venables, everything he had to say this week, the confusion around the offense, talk about discipline, and then dive into OU West Virginia Saturday night. But first, we got to thank our sponsors, Rose Hill Builders, National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum, Oklahoma Ford Dealers, Our Blood Institute, Bob Moore Auto Group, and of course, our friends at Fire Lake. Todd, you could join the, the Citizen Potawatomi team, the, the nation team, if you wanted. There's 75 positions available. One of the nation's many businesses. Go to firelakejobs.com to find out more. Well, welcome, guys. Appreciate Todd, you being back. Steve, you joining us. How are we doing? I'm doing great. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. This is great. I'm good. I'm I'm already uh you said we're talking about officiating, right? Indeed we are. Hold on, I got something then I need to bring into the conversation. Let's see how this fits. Whoa. Let's see if this fits around. Got to get that tinfoil hat on, you know. <laughs> we're going to do officiating talk. There well, we go. That is what we are here to do. But first, let's let's introduce Steve. As I mentioned, he's the host of Two Homers and a Realist, uh, a, a fabulous OU pod. There, they've got stuff out every week, at least every week, right? Right, Steve? Yeah, usually twice a week. We do a twice post week pod, and then we do a midweek preview pod. Well, I listened to the post game bedlam this morning. It was uh, a, a great listen, you guys. You guys do a great job. And so, Steve, before we dive into officiating, just give us your, your OU bona fides. You, you, how long have you been going to games in Norman? How, you been, sure. how long have you been watching OU? Well, as far as I can remember, um, I don't know when my first OU home game was. I do know that I haven't missed a home game since 1985. Um, that was the, the game where Troy Aikman broke his ankle and Jamel Holloway came in to to try and salvage the game against Miami, didn't, but he did earn us a national title the rest of that year. My first OU Texas game was in 84, another infamous game, and I haven't missed one since. My first away game was 1983 at Missouri. So another infamous game because we, we lost 13-0, uh, to zero, if I remember right. So Missouri? Um, well, you started, you started at the bottom, didn't you, in Columbia? <laughs> well, you'd think so, yeah. It, it, was, it was a challenge. Well, I'm gonna. I'm not gonna touch that one. Well, that was a good, good attempt out at baiting, but I'm not gonna touch that one. Uh, Steve, where were you Saturday for for OU OSU for the final bedlam? Where'd you watch? So I watched it from my home, um, having having lost a, the pre, previous game to Kansas. Our crew decided to stay home, especially in light of how expensive the game was going to be going up to Stillwater. Felt like it was going to be a challenge, but still was fairly confident in what we could do and sure enough we got really close but didn't quite get there obviously as most know well the officiating storm has been brewing all year perhaps even a few years really since since oklahoma 
announced its intention to leave the SEC, folks immediately wondering, you know, what what are three seasons in a conference you're going to leave and leave behind going to look like um, in things such as officiating um, that certainly had fuel poured on it in, in the Oklahoma game. There, there were calls at the end of that game. You mentioned it was close uh, that were high profile. The Macari Vickers uh, defensive pass interference, the Brent Venables unsportsmanlike conduct penalty that followed it. And then uh, most of all, most notably of all, certainly the Drake Stoops play at the end where there was the no call on what appeared to be a, a surefire uh, pass interference. That did not do anything to slow down kind of the feeling, I think, among fans in, in OU Nation. Um, and I guess, you know, where I come at it from, you know, I'm a, I'm a journalist. I sit in the press box. I cover the games. I cover this team. Um, I come at all of this from an objective perspective, but that also means I'm not in the crowd and I'm not among the fans. And so, Steve, that's, that's part of why we had brought you here today is, is to discuss um, what has become, you know, a, at least a narrative among the fan base um, of, of this feeling around Big 12 officiating and, and charting, you know, our calls going against OU more than they would have been in, in another scenario. Uh, and so I guess before we dive in, I'd like to know what you what you really think of this. But if you could give us the outline of what OU fans, maybe as a whole or a certain segment of the fan base is feeling uh, watching these yeah. games, watching the officiating, what what has the, the sentiment been? Well, I obviously can't speak for all of the fan base, but I'm pretty engaged with it. I have a lot of friends, obviously, that are varying degrees of OU diehards to OU um, fans and um, then, of course, following it online. You get the general feel that, that the typical OU fan feels like they're fighting an uphill battle against the officials to one degree or another. And that ranges all the way from they're just not calling things in our favor as much as others to it's an outright bias, maybe even a conspiracy. And, and some will cook up some pretty heavy conspiracy theories regarding it. And uh, and where do you land then on on that spectrum from uh, you know inconsistent refereeing? I'd be just for the record where I'd begin here. I, I personally feel like you know it's more likely that college referees notoriously um, you know inconsistent. It's a really hard job, but college refereeing um, has has we've been talking about college referees as long as they've been playing college football. I lean there, but there is then the other end of the spectrum of a, a full blown conspiracy with Brett Yormark sitting over a phone. Uh, calling up rest for four games and, and swinging things. So, as I've laid out the the full extent of it, where, where do you land there? So I, I try to hold a more nuanced view. I try to set aside my own bias that is obviously going to be there, um, and look at it uh, as much as I can from an impartial spectator's point of view. But um, you know, I, I I think that I would really say that it's a combination of two things. One is partially what I would describe as a careful, qualified appraisal of quality. And that is to say, not everyone is above average. In fact, half of us are below average at things that we try to do. And that's true of officials too. So to some degree, I think you have to look at it just as a basic level of competency or quality. And the gold standard in football officiating is found in the NFL. And it's going to come down from that level in terms of quality. It's you cannot expect that a junior high game is going to be officiated as well as an NFL Sunday night game. So the same can be said about college football and the various leagues. I would expect that the Big 12 is probably not to be expected to have the most highest quality official. Um, and, you know, 
results, of course, will vary, uh, but that's going to be a component of it. The other component is partially an accusation of bias. I, I think that there is um, some bias going on, but that comes in two varieties, intentional and unintentional. And I tend to side with it mostly being not deliberate. Um, I think it stands for reason that officials, among many others, would have reason, a motive, if you will, to be upset with OU in Texas. So it's a disruption to the league, it's a disruption to their economics and their finances to have the two biggest teams leaving the conference. And that's going to trickle down to every aspect of it, including an officiating. So I think there's the potential for an unconscious bias to creep in when it comes to officials. So I tend to think it's more of the case that they are um, irritated at OU in Texas and perhaps uh, unconsciously biased against them, not that there's some intentional thing. Now, there could be some uh, bad apples in the group that have intentional bias. And in all cases, we really want to test for this by looking for evidence. Um, I haven't conducted that evidence. I've seen anecdotes. I've seen a lot of statistics on it. But if you really wanted to dive deeply, you'd say we need to start looking for a true excess volume of mistakes. And just to say, are mistakes happening more than, than what would or should be expected? And then we want to say, are these mistakes disproportionately harming or benefiting certain teams? So is there a concentration beyond what would just be a reasonable variance? And I, I don't know. I don't have the answer for that. But again, I do see anecdotal evidence for both of those cases uh, against OU and Frank Texas as well. And I would want to say, even if we were to prove that there was bias, that doesn't prove a conspiracy. It just very well could be inadvertent bias, and not a deliberate plot. So I, I tend to be fairly charitable there. But I do open up the possibility there are a few bad apples that are um, looking to exact revenge, if you will. Steve, I have a question because I don't I don't know the answer to this. I don't know if you do or not. But how would it? How do you feel like? Let's say you're an official. You're a you know a center judge or whatever. How is Oklahoma and Texas leaving hurting your bottom dollar? Because I I could also make the argument that with them leaving now, especially with the league going to 16 teams. It may create more officiating opportunities and more money for some of these guys. Well, it might, but the general economics of the league is to take a step backwards. And so they are, they're adding a lot of teams, but in, on net, they're not going to be striking as good a deal as they would have had probably with an OU and a Texas with expansion. Um, maybe if you look at OU Texas and a 10 team league versus a 16, but it's probably an unfair comparison because that just wasn't long term sustainable. So I would say from that standpoint and the standpoint of if there are quality officials and just the quality of the league, it's going to have a, a an effect that's going to pull out of this league and into the bigger leagues like the Big Ten and the SEC. So I think that it probably does have a pretty big impact. Um, even if they're growing in this contract versus what they had previously, the real comparison is what trajectory could have they could they have been on versus where they're headed now. Yeah, the one thing I, I would say, I mean, I think there are two things at play for me that people forget about. Um, one is, you know, I think their game checks are still going to be the same. Those officials, I don't think they're they're actually going to make less money. The league might, but I don't know that it's going to hit them. But the other thing is, you mentioned, Steve, the gold standard is the NFL. And most of these people that, that officiate at the Big 12 level, 
there's a lot of them that they want to officiate in the NFL or they want to officiate a college football playoff game. And that means you get graded by people who aren't in the Big 12. And there's there's something to be lost if you are biased against Oklahoma. Now, like you said, there could still be some unintentional bias that comes in. Um, I just don't think it's enough to be noticeable. I kind of go with Hanlon's razor, Eli, which is, you know, assume ignorance, not malice. Uh, that's where I kind of fall on officiating in general. And it just so happened that on Saturday, the calls that went against Oklahoma that were 50-50 happened to be in big spots in the game. They they all were, and, and they popped up. I mean, you know, I think on appearance that the Brent Venables on Sportsmanlike Conduct, which followed up a pass interference that I think a lot of folks felt, you know, could have been called on, on the wide receiver from Oklahoma State as opposed to Makari Vickers. Um, you know, it, sometimes it's, it's the gaps you can't fill in. We don't know what Brent Venables said uh, when he was, and, and we know how far out on the field he was. It, it seemed like a quick flag, but Brent Venables says he asked a question. We don't know what he said in that question. Um, but you know, that he also loses a bit of benefit of the doubt uh, on the fact that he's had side sideline warnings throughout the season. And that only a week ago on another fourth quarter scoring drive from another team, Brent Venables' bench, in this case, it wasn't him picked up a penalty. And so in that sense, that's where some of the benefit of the doubt gets lost on that, at least in terms of defending Brent Venables. Um, but most of all, the, the play that everyone saw, the play that seemingly was most obvious was the Drake Stoops pass interference or, or non-pass interference in the end zone. And, and I've got to imagine, uh, I've got the tweets in front of me that, you know, one even from Reggie Pearson's father, OU Safety, suggesting, you know, Texas, you're next, watch out for the Big 12 refs. Um, those are the things that fuel, uh, whether it is conspiracy, narrative, or, or any of those things, those are the moments that did it. Um, but Todd, to your point, I, I think in terms of plausibility, and objectivity, you'd, you'd point probably more toward um, incompetence or, or, you know, inconsistency in refereeing more than some grand conspiracy. But again, the fact is, and as Steve, you know, touched on a bit, you know, that there is a large part of the fan base that, that believes this uh, is the case. I mean, Steve, what sort of things were you hearing either when you were scrolling online post game on your way? Uh, I guess you, you were not at the game. Um, but among the fans, you, I know you've been in stadiums uh, this season and last where, where folks might have been walking out, having these conversations. What are the things you hear? More of just the, the same of what we're talking about and worse. Um, I, I think that the most vocal fans are probably going to be the ones that have um, the biggest, uh, call it gripe, or maybe lean towards the conspiracy and that's really nothing new under the sun. That's always been the case. They've always been the ones who think that the breaks aren't going their way. And so it probably is unfair just to look at that group of people that are the most vocal, but that they're certainly the most vocal. I would say that the unanimity among the OU fan base, though, to get to this point now, three, two and a half years into us leaving for the SEC, it becomes pretty clear there's something going on. If if nothing else, back to what Todd said with Hanlon's razor, just incompetence and mistake, or it could in fact be a bias of some kind. So it, that's where I think that almost every fan feels like something's going on that is beyond just what would be reasonable errors that they've seen throughout the history of watching football, some that go your way and some that don't. 
Eli, Brett Yormark deserves this a little bit, too. Remember, he went to the Texas Tech fans and said beat Texas this year. I mean, he didn't help the conversation by help. doing that. Exactly. It doesn't douse the flames in any way. No, not not at all. Not at all. I will also point out, you know, Oklahoma's last two games, 19 penalties, six turnovers. Um, I don't think the officials had anything to do with the six turnovers. If you want to argue the 19 penalties, that's fine. But also, those were two games on the road. And I do think unintentional bias comes in a lot with referees based on rowdy crowds, right? And Oklahoma's always going to see that. We've literally seen two straight fan bases storm the field against them. So I don't think it's surprising that maybe officials get caught up in that and miss some calls or are a little bit more flag happy against Oklahoma. I think that's human nature. Uh, you know, unfortunately, we can't make referees out of car parts. I'm sure sometime after I'm dead and gone, they will. Uh, and they'll just be robots out there calling the thing. But right now, you know, they are still human beings. And I think they do get caught up in it. And I would imagine, you know, at, at that Bedlam game, and you look at where the referee with the pass interference call is situated, I literally sat in row one right where that happened two years ago. I mean, you're right on top of the officials. I can't. I could. I could imagine how you could be affected by that as an official. Uh, maybe you don't immediately think of it, but subconsciously you could think, "Do I really want to throw this flag in front of all these Oklahoma State fans that are literally inches from me?" You know. So I. I don't know. I I go both ways on it. I think maybe it was a little bit more about the moment than it was any sort of bias about Oklahoma. Well, that's probably true. Uh, that's a really good point about being on the road. That would be something you'd want to explore. You look back, that's not just a hypothesis that you've got. It's something that's actually been studied. And we saw that in the COVID experience. They studied NBA refs, which is another gold standard in officiating. And they definitely saw, and we've seen it in hockey, it's been studied, um, where home field advantage really boils down to official bias. Um, again, probably completely unintentional, but it does have a big effect. And when you isolate and don't have fans in the stadium, you are able to tease that out to see when it was different than before. And indeed, there did appear to be some bias. I think, and Eli, my, my biggest thing is I just wish, and I know it's tough to ask for, but I wish we could just hear from these referees. Um, you, the problem is, though, I th and, and I'm amongst those asking for it, but the problem is we would only want to hear from them when they do something wrong, right? We would never have a referee and run a sound clip of them where we ask them the question, hey, talk us through that pass interference call you got right. We only want to talk to them when they do something wrong. So it's a little bit unfair to ask for that, but also at the same time in this scenario, I think we need to hear from the conference. You know, instead of we don't comment on judgment calls, I think they need to take people through what that referee saw, and if he got it wrong, they need to say, hey, hand up, got that one wrong. Well, this is taking you know you guys and, and the listener into our world in the press box. Uh, most games, if, if, if there's something funny that happens, for instance, uh, at Kansas, there was that tip pass, right? And the guy yep. who was out of bounds reestablished himself. We, they, they have done away in recent years with the pool reporter with the official, at least for Big 12 games, and, and I think uh, you, you're right that we only ask when something happens, but that's that's the moment you need to talk to a referee most. I think that's a shame, both you know, for for fans and people who follow these games, that we can't get that transparency directly. For non-judgment calls, the, the the league will comment, and they commented again, for instance, on that Kansas play. But when you were talking about uh, the pass interference on Macari Vickers, 
Uh, obviously, the Brent Venables unsportsmanlike conduct and then the pass interference on Drake Stoops or non-pass interference. All three of those deemed judgment calls, ones that the Big 12 will not comment on. So at the very least, it, it leaves some some opening for not conspiracy, but certainly some. Uh, but but for people to wonder when you when you leave that space open, when you don't comment comment on those things and don't make referees available and referees again, they, they've got a hard enough job and they face enough scrutiny. I know, in fact, that the names of the referees who officiated Bedlam uh, on Saturday had their names posted on social media. And that, that's where things get too far. And, and also where we wonder why there aren't more officials or better officials. It's because those jobs, even more so at the youth sports level, are, are just hard. And you're, you're waiting, not waiting, but you know, referees walk to parking lots from high school football stadiums and have to wonder if someone's waiting there for them. These are hard jobs, uh, but when there is not that transparency at, at the league level, it, it certainly leaves open opportunity for people to talk. I do want to go on the record. And just, I, I, just, I just want to say, I thought all three were garbage calls. Uh, if we're being totally honest, I, the only one I'll put the caveat with is the Brent Venables one, because I don't know what preceded that. But if that's all that happened to merit that flag, I thought that was way too quick of a flag. And I thought the other two judgment calls of pass interference were both wrong. So I thought they were three bad calls. I just kind of draw the line at at intentional bias or conspiracy. Go ahead, Steve. Yeah, I was just going to say I'd be remiss, at least from my fellow podcasters, if I didn't mention that there's a lot of other things beyond those obvious ones or the ones that were really talked about a lot. There were two throws to Farouk where if you look at the screen times, the contact is very thorough and being made before the ball's even in the shot. And you can follow the ball finally to, to make it into the shot. Um, last year, if the statistic is right, we in conference had one holding call called in our favor um, and multiple. I don't remember how many. It was in the teens to low 20s, how many were called against us. And so it's it's things like that when I say there's strong anecdotal evidence for it. And we, we can look and find a lot of um, calls here and there that don't that don't seem to go our way. Now, to push back against the conspiracy theory of it. I would say that one of the most crucial points in the game against Kansas, a, a touchdown for Kansas got called back on a holding penalty. And then the other thing would be when um, we, when Walker scores a touchdown and the ball comes loose and Kansas gets it and runs, they were adamant that it was a touchdown and it was very close. So they had opportunities there if it really were a full-blown conspiracy to go the other way. But there are many, many little bits and pieces of evidence that seem to add up into something that is that is troubling. I don't know what the number is on holding calls for this year that Oklahoma's had called, you know, that other teams have held Oklahoma, but I you mentioned one against Kansas which is the same as all of last year in conference play. I would just mm-hmm. say this and I think the numbers would probably bear this out if you look not just at Oklahoma but at other teams around the league. Bad defensive lines don't get held very often. And Oklahoma had a bad defensive line last year. So I think the fact that they've gotten better up front is part of why they're getting held more this year. And that probably played more into the number as well. Well, I did a little math this morning. I think, you know, a key distinction probably among certain fans and, and in this discussion is it's it's the volume of penalties, but but then there are the ones that matter, the ones that have the biggest impact on a game. For instance, you know, the three we've, we've kind of harped on here. However, if you look at the three seasons since Oklahoma uh, announced its intention to, to head to the SEC, accepted its invite, Sooners have had 
225 penalties, 6.4 penalties for games uh, per game. The three full seasons that preceded that, I, I chopped out 2020, but 2017, 2018, 2019. 269 total penalties. Obviously, we haven't gotten through the end of this season. That is 6.4 penalties per game. So the number is held firm on on the total number of penalties, or, or I guess the average per game. Um, so that's at least one bit more of the, the statistical analysis. That doesn't account if you're somebody at home seething about the referees and, and wondering how much Brett Yormark slipped them um, to to you know drive home the bias against OU and and that Brett Yormark had a bag man in Texas to, to do the same against Kansas State to, to no avail, um, that does not account for the, the individual moments and the, the plays where you can look at it, and we can all look at that Drake Stoops play and say there was a miss. Um, but statistically, the Sooners are not getting penalized more. They do now lead the, na- uh, the conference in penalties this season, but uh, that's a big part of it. Those 19 you mentioned, Todd, that's about a little under a third of OU's penalties this season have come in their two losses. That's a correlation in its own right in terms of, of how the Sooner season has slipped a bit. The Drake Stoops thing... Do, the, go ahead, Steve. I was wondering if you happen to do the, the inverse, uh, how many penalties per game the opponent had in the game. That's going to be math for another day. I kind of maxed out there. Uh, <laughs> Steve, I'm a writer uh, for a reason. <laughs> Mathematics are well, not part of my day-to-day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, but well, that no, that is that's a good question. There is, you know, to be done, you know, that analysis. It, you're, the numbers will never get to the bottom of the entire thing again, because it, it it may be less about the volume as it is about the biggest calls, and and that doesn't account for that. Uh, but there there's certainly some some deep diving to be done into the numbers on on penalties. I also don't think people realize sometimes, and I'm like I'm a coach's son, so I'm the last that that holds his hand up and goes, "Hey, everybody, think of the officials," because you know, my dad rode officials up and down the sideline my entire life and, you know, not a big fan of them a lot of times. But I do think we have to admit it's 2023 and college football and pro football are extremely hard to officiate with all the moving parts and all the things going on and with how athletic everybody is. Um, you know, I think a couple of things were just weird about that play at the end of the game. The no call is obviously weird, but I thought it was just as weird, guys. Like, Drake Stoops did not get up complaining. I know he thought he caught the ball, um, but I, the way it all went down, I don't know about you watching it, Steve, because I was watching it on TV like you were. I thought that looked like pass interference. Maybe it wasn't because Drake Stoops isn't mad, and then they showed the replay, and I was like, how'd they miss it? So the whole thing was just kind of weird in real time. Yeah, at least watching it, we exploded with, we were waiting for a flag. And and to our eyes, it was so obvious there should have been a flag. And when one didn't come, it was pretty immediate that we were making the decision that there was a problem with that. And I wonder if Drake Stoops didn't have the same feeling, that it was so obvious to him that he wasn't looking for a flag. He just fully expected one. I don't know. Yeah, and only minutes later, Drake Stoops is involved in the other big play of the week that they kind of took the attention off of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that certainly was the moment. Todd, look like you had one more thing to say on that. Well, no, that that was – I just thought those those things were weird, the way it all went. I, there's, I've watched it over and over again, and the official was – you know, I would imagine most officials out there would tell you he was in textbook position. 
Um, maybe he was looking down at the feet to see if he kept his feet in bounds, and maybe he missed the. Con- I really don't know. Like I've tried to, I've tried to look at it objectively and go, how did he miss this? And it's hard to find it. And I think those are the type of calls, you know, that really get fans thinking that there's a bias against them. So, you know, the Big Twelve, that call, it doesn't help the narrative any. The way it all went down on Saturday. Indeed. Well, I think that's enough officiating talk. As someone who, I don't like officiating talk. I want to talk about the games. I want to talk about the players, the people, all that. But this, you know, again, wherever you land on this, this is a present feeling among OU fans. And it's a piece right now of, of, you know, in a broad sense, the football culture around the University of Oklahoma. And so that's why we are talking about it. And Steve, I appreciate you sharing all that with us. But let's move on. Game week, uh, Oklahoma plays West Virginia Saturday night. Sooners open as 13-point favorites, uh, and they're going to be wearing the Unity uniforms. Uh, You'd assume it's going to be probably an angsty but excited crowd uh, at Owen Field. You'd imagine, you know, this if things go perfectly, it's a great get-right game for OU. Home crowd, night game, create some turnovers early, create some explosive plays early, uh, do something they haven't done the last two weeks. Certainly not, I guess, with Kansas is, is take a team that, that you are better than or, or perceived to be better than and go show it uh, and take off. But uh, there, there's certainly a lot riding around the Sooners right now, uh, whether it's it's the conversation around Jeff Lebby and the play calling and the offense or the lack of discipline the last few weeks with the penalties. Uh, there's a lot swirling. Uh, I want to begin, though, with, with Brent Venables, Jeff Lebby, and the talk around the talk about the play calling because Brent Venables post game Saturday and Stillwater defended, uh, you know, the, the play call on fourth down, for instance, for Drake Stoops that came up short, stood by it. Then Monday night on his own coach's show in, at Rudy's in Norman said, we've got a Rolodex of better plays about that, a complete about face. Uh, and then Tuesday morning, perhaps in a less friendly setting, a, a weekly press conference, uh, basically backed off entirely. His answer to, to a question directly about the, the Rolodex comment was, we're on to West Virginia, and, and same for the follow-up. He basically cut off uh, discussion about the game that was passed and said, we're moved on, um, which, again, was an about-face from about 16 hours earlier where Brent um, you know, had something to say about it. Todd, what was You're your— You're trying to go 1-0 this week, Eli. Leave him alone. Well— uh, again, uh, he, he made the call to say what he said Monday night. That that only stoked the flames. And, and that is where I would just say, you know, it's, it's where I sit, you know, on the, the media side of it is um, certainly we're still going to be asking questions about Jeff Levy and about this offense. But I guarantee you uh, that only got, you know, inflamed by, by Brent's own comments Monday night on a very public, uh, well-broadcast coaches show. So, there should have been an expectation, I think, that it came up, and I'm, I'm sure that was his preparation was to uh, to shut it down. But uh, two very different approaches on the topic within uh, about a 16-hour span. I just think going into this game this week, and I don't know how you feel, Steve, but it's there are so many things that have that have cropped up in the last not just two weeks, but three weeks going back to UCF that you know it's it's a little bit startling that it feels like more things are cropping up as opposed to things getting fixed. And so now you're at the point where it's on players, it's on coaches, it's about, you know, penalties, it's about making bad decisions, it's about guys not being in the right positions. 
but it's also on the sideline with the co- like there's just a lot going on right now so that could be good in one way cuz maybe it's a lot of small things that Oklahoma needs to fix but it's bad another in another way because it feels like it's a lot right now and so I don't know that they can fix it all in one week and you know 13 and a half's a big number against West Virginia I don't think Oklahoma loses on Saturday but I just I have a hard time in good conscience, picking Oklahoma to beat any team by 14, especially a team like West Virginia that seemed a little bit dangerous this year. What do you think, Steve? Well, I think that you highlight a lot of what's going on, and a lot of things are taking their toll right now with the team. One is injuries. They're fighting a lot of injuries that are, are going to be difficult to fill those gaps and continue down the stretch. They don't have a lot of time to get guys healthy, and so that's going to take its toll. Um You've got obviously turmoil in terms of angst about what are we playing for now? Have we, we can't really achieve our goal at this point. The most you can say is there's a backdoor chance of getting back into the Big 12 title hunt, and that's a real backdoor where you need help. So that's a totally different perspective from a few weeks ago when you controlled your own destiny and people were talking about you as a college football playoff team. Emotionally, that's a very difficult thing to overcome. Then, of course, in the backdrop of all of it, they're not immune to or isolated from the talk about Levy. I think that the the entire team is going to understand that and know that there's some tension there, and the fan base has a lot of tension. So we don't know exactly the future direction of what that's going to be like. And you also have potentially some tension between just offense and defense, where the defense feels like they're making strides, and the offense could feel like either they're not pulling their weight or the defense could look at them as if they're the reason they're not. They're coming up short with all of their goals. So keeping the locker room intact, keeping everybody unified, unity jerseys this week to see if that can help. Um, I think it's all really important, and it's a really difficult time right now uh, for that program to understand, are you going to have what it takes to get through a tough spell because there's still a lot to play for, and there's a lot to build on for the future as well. What I'll, I'll say about Brent Venables, too, because I obviously came in strong on on kind of the, the reversal and, and all that with the Rolodex stuff. Um, it was an interesting 30 minutes with him. You know, he, he'd been pretty light and feeling good, um, certainly in the weeks leading up to Kansas. And then, you know, it was a bit of a shocker in Lawrence to come back. Uh, all about, you know, going 1-0 this week, flushing it and all that. And then Stillwater goes down, and, and there's no doubt uh, and this is natural that the pressure mounts and the frustration is there. And I, I think what can be said for Brent Venables, he didn't shy away from what's wrong or what the issues are. There was no, uh, you know, I know people will always compare him at times to his predecessor. There was no, we're close or, you know, it, you can't see it, but we're right there. Um, and so he was, he laid bare the issues. You could also see the frustration, both in the fact that those issues are cropping up and from a football perspective. Um, but then, you know, I, I think here and there, you know, it can always be said um, that that noise doesn't infiltrate and can't get in. But but I think it's it's naive to think that nobody within that program, I mean, Brent Venables, I, I don't know what his intake is, um, but, you know, hears what's said, sees what's written. Um, and, and there was a bit of that, too, in what he had to say and, and sort of standing by himself and, and by this team. Um, and perhaps wrapping that all together is the fact that I think Brent Venables has known that this has been his team for better or worse all year. Um, not suggesting that, uh, the highs with the Sooners have not been true highs, but that 
they weren't perfect and that the margins on them were really thin. Um, fact is, you know, people have been pointing it out, but outside of, of say, Arkansas State and Tulsa, the only real blowout they've had was, was Iowa State. So they were not a runaway college football playoff contender that, that you just looked at and said, top to bottom, they're great. We knew they had issues. There were things that weren't biting them until they were. Um, the depth was was never going to be there like it is this year for Georgia or Michigan or, or any of those programs at the very top. Um, so I, I think it's it's a bit of balancing, right? The fact that two weeks ago, everything was in front of the Sooners. It was all in their hands. Uh, and now here we are two weeks later. And as Steve mentioned, it's kind of disappeared on OU. But, but squaring that with the fact that this is year two of a rebuild, that this is a team that was not as deep as the teams that would have been competing with uh, to, to go to the playoff. Or, you know, it's not deeper than Texas, despite the result on October 7th. Um, so I, I think some of that's what Brent Venables has to square with. And of course, expectations are always going to be higher, you know, outside or they're going to skyrocket faster outside of a program than within. Uh, but now it's about these next three games and, and regrouping and, and getting this, you know, get, getting to the, the Friday after Thanksgiving with TCU and closing this regular season in a good place. I don't think all of a sudden Jeff Lebby forgot how to coach football or Brent Venables became undisciplined or Dylan Gabriel forgot how to throw the ball. Like, none of that happened, uh, which I think is the frustrating part for Sooner fans is because at times it did feel like Jeff Levy didn't know how to coach football uh, the last couple weeks. I mean, I, I'll just call it like it is. That last play call was garbage. It, it, seemed like, it seemed like one of those cobbled together last second, like we don't really have anything else we can run. They go, they go roll out to the short side of the field and don't throw the ball past the sticks. And then, you know, I thought it was kind of, if I'm being honest, I thought it was weak how Drake Stoops got hung out to dry on that. You hear Drake Stoops and his comments about, you know, what they have left to play for. He's the exact type of guy that you would want uh, on your team. And he kind of got left hung out by the coaches on that deal. So, I mean, I, I think there's reason to be upset if you're Oklahoma fans. And I do think looking back, those margins are tight. And there's been some key mistakes that have just been mental errors the last two weeks for Oklahoma that are the difference in them being undefeated right now or where they're at, which is looking at what's left to play for. It's a broader conversation, but you know, the, the, the game management, this is, this is year two now of, of Brent Venables and, and Jeff Levy late in games. And the stats been out there this week, they're two and seven and one score games. That's a, a pretty glaring stat and you can nitpick or, you know, talk plenty about, you know, we like, for, for instance, in any of these close games, we liked what we did. We didn't get the outcome we wanted. We've heard that from college coaches, again, as long as they've been playing college football. But with that two and seven number, it's, a, it's, it's tougher to square. And, and the, the errors that, that keep popping up late in games, whether it is play calling or, or game management or any of that, um, they are stacking up. They've, they've begun to cost the Sooners if they, if they weren't already. Uh, and now... Here we are with, the, with OU looking to avoid its second three-game losing streak in as many seasons, which is, would have been hard to believe. I mean, I, I think it was 1998. A lot of the stats last year all went to John Blake, right? I think that was the last time they'd had a three-game losing streak. Had one last year. That was Kansas State, TCU, and Texas. Got to beat the Mountaineers in Norman to avoid that. little injury news. Uh, Brent Venables updated Tuesday, that, that, and we knew this, that uh, Danny Stutzman and Tawi Walker had both practiced on Monday. That's encouraging. Gentry uh, Williams was supposed to be back in practice Tuesday. But, you know, I, I think with the first two guys there, they were day-to-day -day last week. And 
Tawi was good enough to, to go a bit and, and looked pretty good when he was out there, uh, but clearly limited. Danny Stutzman didn't play a snap, very telling. I think they're going to be day-to-day, you know, certainly this week and, and perhaps beyond it. We don't know exactly what we're dealing with there. And then uh, Gentry Williams, the, the injuries have, have he's been in and out for, for a lot of this season now. He's been really impressive when he's played in, in large part, um, perhaps, you know, less so against uh, Oklahoma State, but as Brent Venables told us, his shoulder popped out. That's something they're working with. So the injuries, um, you know, beyond the guys they simply don't have, the, the guys they're trying to work in and out, and all three of them pretty important ones, um, there's one key distinction in the last few weeks, not having Danny Stutzman, not having a healthy Tawi Walker, and, and with Gentry Williams in and out. Those are things that will, uh, will drag a team down. Where we're going to finish you know, Steve, I don't know what kind of a listener you've been in the past to the Letterman jacket. Lawyer. But, but, but Todd, so t- then you know that Todd is a veteran of, of Liz in or Liz out. Mm-hmm. Todd, I'm sorry to leave you on the bench today, but we're going to close out with a game of Steve in or Steve out. Steve, are you, are you a Steven? Like officially on, on your driver's license? Or are you a Steve? Yeah, but with a PA. So, yeah. Ah, man. Well, that was a, an oversight on our part, but we're going to stick with it. Steve in or Steve out. Start here. Do you see the Sooners winning their next three games, winning out here? They would finish what? A, oh man, I told you math wasn't any good. Seven two, they'd be ten and two. Man, uh-huh. uh, yeah. Are you Steve in? Steve out on that. I'm gonna be Steve in on that. I think that this team has a lot of explosive capability. They've proven that they are talented enough. They can put a lot of points up. The defense is head and shoulders above where they were in the last season, and really in many respects, where they've been over the most of the last three or four seasons. So I really think in the next three games, these teams are not as good as Oklahoma on paper. I think that we can put it together and and rattle off three victories for sure. It's by no means guaranteed. It doesn't look as good as it did several weeks ago, but I'm Steve in on three victories in a row. For the record, I'm Liz in as well. You know what, Todd, you're welcome to get it. This could be a combo game of Steve in or... There we go. And Liz in. So, yeah, get in on this. Dylan Gabriel, he's at 13,851 career passing yards going into Saturday. He needs 295 per game to pass Ty Detmer and, and finish six all time in passing. Assuming, oh, well, I mean, we know OU's got the, the bowl game. Uh, that, that's a four game sample. We're taking out the conference title game because, as Steve pointed out, a real back door at this point. Liz in or Steve in or Liz out or Steve out on Dylan Gabriel getting there. Well, I'll say Steve in. I think he's going to get there, and that would probably correspond with that 3-0 and finish to go into the bowl game. I'm going to go Liz in as well. BYU's been really banged up in the secondary, so maybe maybe on a cold night in Provo, he throws for about 400 mm. yards. All right. Well, this one could correspond to this. I know it's a name that we've we've been hearing a bit now, as certainly some feel less strong than Drake Stoops, that there is still something to play for this year. Uh Jackson Arnold to start a game between now and the end of the season. That would include the bowl game. You guys, Steve in, Liz in, the whole thing. What do we think? I'm going to say Steve out as far as starting. Um, I do want to see a lot more Jackson Arnold, and that's been something that we've been percolating with, within the fan base that now that we still have a lot to play for, but most of your goals are off the table for the most part, at least. And so, it's time to look for the future. I think I would like to see Jackson Arnold in and in early. It's something we were promised by Brent Venables that we have packages for him back in the off season. And the only thing we saw was a poor version of the bell buzzer. 
So I would like to see him get meaningful snaps in games that are still in doubt and it look for opportunities for him to finish. I'll go out as well, Liz out, because I think the only way Jackson Arnold starts is if Dylan Gabriel gets hurt, and I don't want to predict an injury. Um, and and I think just I'm I would understand where the fans would want to see him more. Um, I think a game needs to be probably a little out of hand before you see him, maybe for a play or two, just pop him in. But I think also the way Dylan Gabriel chose Oklahoma, you know, sight unseen, came here from UCLA. I think they owe it to him to let him finish out what he started. Uh, you know, unless there's an injury over the rest of the season. Danny Stutzman was not, I think it was 12, one of the 12 semifinalists for the Butkus Award, given to the best linebacker in the nation each year. Some classified it as a snub. Others, you know, you can look at the fact that he's now missed a game and a half and, and no longer leads the Big 12 in tackles or tackles for loss, any of that stuff. Snub, Steve in or Steve out? Even, I think that is a snub. I, I, he has more tackles for loss than the other guys, I think, that are up for it. He's played great. Um, uh, he, he obviously was out for the last game because of injury. Um, but I will say, Steve, and if that means there's more chance that he returns for another season and positions himself even better for the NFL. Todd? I'm going to go Liz out. I don't know that it's a snub. I think he was probably just, if you're looking at it objectively, statistically, he was kind of right there on the edge. Um, you know, a lot of times they lean towards older players, so I, he maybe didn't get the nod over a senior or something like that. I don't know. I don't have the whole list in front of me. And I'd be lying to you if I said I've seen everyone on that list play a lot this year. So I think that's probably one where, you know, maybe it's a little bit of a snub, but I don't think it's that big of a deal. I don't think you would have won it anyway. Many will speculate about this between now and whenever. Uh, Jeff Levy to return as the Sooners offensive coordinator in 2024. Steve, Steve in or Steve out? Well, I'm Steve out from both the standpoint of I don't think it'll happen and I don't think it should happen. I think that the experiment with Jeff Levy as a fit at OU has proven to not be successful. Um, it is not necessarily a knock against him, except it's just I don't think he has what it takes to be the play caller at a place like Oklahoma. And I think he's done a lot of learning on the job. So I think I got a dog coming in to greet me. I think that he um, has a bright future in front of him somewhere else, but it's not at Oklahoma. Dodd? I'm going to say Liz out as well, but my guess is that he – he decides to go somewhere else. Uh, it just doesn't feel like a great fit to me. And I'm on the outside looking in. It's a 30,000 foot view. I don't think he's a bad coach, but I don't know that it's the right fit. So it may be one of those where he decides to look elsewhere. And I think there are plenty of people who would hire him as their offensive coordinator. I think it's, it's worth remembering in, in all the discussion we're having around Jeff Levy and worthy discussion that what it was just earlier this year that Nick Saban was trying to bring him to Alabama. I think he's still very well regarded nationally in terms of what people think of him as a coordinator. See if that would translate as a head coach or if anyone would give him that shot. I think he'd have no problem finding a job somewhere if it were elsewhere. Well, fellas, we're going to wrap there. Todd, I, our number on dog appearances. I don't know what else we're leading at Sellout Crowd. Yeah, on, bring Bear on here. Come on, Bear. We are leading the league at Sellout Crowd on dogs on podcasts. Maybe not much else. But as Bear runs over there, we're going to wrap it here. If you've made it this far, uh, please uh, subscribe, comment, like, all those things. Look at Bear. Looking great. As always, you can find us 
Apple, YouTube, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, find all of my work at selloutcrowd.com, eli-letterman.com. Todd Lizenby puts out incredible stuff and has beautiful poses with his pup. And, of course, Steve Winkler, one, thank you for joining us. And, two, tune in to Two Homers and a Realist. It's a great listen. Good stuff on the Sooners. And we will be back, hopefully, with good stuff. Todd, we'll see. It's you and me Monday uh, post OU West Virginia. We'll see what the Sooners do this weekend. Thanks for listening.